0: Diverse voices, unique sound, not the same old thing, different, different. This is NOCO FM. Recovering from a life ordeal, be it the death of a loved one, a divorce, loss of a job, a serious physical injury or sickness, can sometimes result in personal and spiritual growth. When it does... Dr. Frank Pesciuti calls the transformative experience a chrysalis crisis. If properly managed, these kinds of crises can result in increased physical, emotional, intellectual, social, and moral development. Join us today when my guest is Dr. Frank Pesciuti, licensed clinical psychologist and certified hypnotherapist. He has a private practice in Charlottesville, Virginia, and he's the founder and president of the Associated Clinicians of Virginia a group that provides psychotherapy and organizational development services to individuals and businesses. I am absolutely honored to have him on the show today. You're in for a real treat, how we can transform life's ordeals and how they can truly lead to our personal and spiritual transformation. This is The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. So thank you so much for joining me today. It's just a thrill to have you on the show.
1: Well, I am honored to be welcome to be on your show and uh, happy to be here.
0: Thank you. Your book is absolutely wonderful. We're going to be talking about your book today, Chrysalis Crisis, How Life's Ordeals Can Lead to Personal and Spiritual Transformation. So let's talk about a little bit about the book. You talked about the the little girl trying to help the butterfly out of the cocoon uh-huh. and and touching its wings talk a little bit about how that became then the analogy for this book.
1: Well, I, you know, I had already been on the theme of realizing that over the many years I've been doing psychotherapy, usually people come in in crisis. And, you know, after they get through the initial surge, maybe the loss of someone they love, a relationship, Uh, whatever it may be, that there's usually a point where they pivot uh, and they start looking at, you know, areas that they may need um, to grow that were required in order to integrate the experience and grow through it, you know, and and then I thought, well, you know, that's interesting because that really is, you know, there's going through the phase of the initial trauma and then there's that work, the struggle that needs to come after that to really get get it behind you and and integrate and learn whatever you can from it. And people often change, you know, you see some of the changes and you you look back and think, hey, you know, (laughs) you don't necessarily want to have a crisis like that again, but you'll look back and say, if it wasn't for that crisis, I may not have developed this particular area of myself or give attention to that area. So when I was reading about that incident about the little girl, I thought, you know, that's a wonderful, a wonderful metaphor for the book because she, um, you know, she's just a curious little girl who goes in the backyard and sees this caterpillar. And over time, she sees the caterpillar uh, build itself a cocoon and go into the cocoon where it goes through the metamorphosis process. And then notices later on at another point in time where it's breaking out and now it's a butterfly. And she sees it struggling to free itself from the cocoon and and she's you know watching it flapping its wings really hard and noticing that it, it seems stuck. And so she reaches in and feeling, you know, uh, coming from the best place, wants to free it. And then, of course, as we know, you touch the wings of the butterfly, it falls to the ground, and it dies. And she was devastated. So she goes inside and tells her mom that, you know, she was, the whole story, what happened. And her mom said, well, she said that butterfly had to have that struggle because the struggle not only frees itself from the cocoon, but it also strengthens its wings for flight. So I thought, well, that's interesting, because when people come to see me as a therapist, they are struggling to free themselves from the impact of the crisis. But in the struggle itself, they end up so many times needing to develop an area of themselves where they then strengthen themselves for the rest of their flight through life. So there's a twofold, potentially twofold benefit that can come out of you know, effectively working through a crisis. And that can lead to real transformation.
0: And oftentimes those change, those changes may not have happened had there not been that struggle.
1: Exactly. And, you know, so it's hard to, you know, it's like I opened the book with like the the, uh, the long held sayings that there's always going to be, there's always going to be change in life and there's always going to be a certain amount of struggle at times. And those, if you accept that and you can use those, I mean, you know, it's not to become too intellectual about it because if you go through a crisis and I don't jump right in with people and say, okay, if they're just kind of blown away recently, oh, what can we learn from this experience? More about just saying, you know, what do we need to do? Feel some feelings, deal with some things, you know, and then there might be a point where you start saying, well, okay, so now where's the growth need to be so they can continue to build on that.
0: And this book, you know, one of the things that I loved are these different key areas of foundational development that you talk about. So let's talk about the key areas of foundational development. You talk about how physical, intellectual, emotional, moral, and social growth can be promoted by crisis.
1: Sure. Well, you know, it's a little like Maslow's hierarchy of need. I mean, there's some crises people will bring in and you'll say it might be a health crisis precipitated. I use an example of a fellow who has a heart attack. Now, these are all interdependent. Uh, all these key areas. There's ten of them, um, but these are foundational. So you might find somebody might come in and be in, uh, in a crisis because of financial mismanagement, um, or you know they may be in crisis because you know their house got blown down by a tornado. So sometimes it's all about just the basics, you know, needing food and shelter, and um, and so. Uh, one needs to focus on that area. Now, I don't pose myself as a, a physician, medical doctor, but if I need to get someone to look at their nutrition, I might suggest that they get a nutritionist consult. But you know, but there's a lot of stress around uh, areas of life where it just comes down to taking care of health, finances, and just managing their physical world. Uh, learning about you know exercise, things like that. So that you know, you could you could look at all ten of these keys. Um, as capacities that we all have. There are areas where you have like a physical IQ, you have an intellectual IQ, you have an emotional IQ, you have a moral IQ, and you have a social IQ. So there are all levels of intelligence and capacity. So I see the first five. Now, I could, I could have flipped intellectual first because I think even, I guess I would imagine as an infant, though I don't remember coming into my body, it might be more of I'm thinking, what is this? Whose body is this anyway? Where's this food coming from? You know, is it from me or an outside source? But um, the intellectual is not only just gaining knowledge about all facets of life, but it also, in therapy sometimes, it can be changing beliefs, you know, so you find people who get into what it may be more of a cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's sort of like they get themselves painted into corners by what they believe, and they'll say, gosh, you know, you're so rooted in that belief, that in itself is making it difficult for you to move through this crisis. The emotional, I think, is one of the hardest, because um, it is difficult. To, emotions need to be experienced in order to be learned. And, and some people, they just don't have that area developed that much. And if they go through a crisis, for example, in the book of a young, a young brilliant guy who I use, uh, who's super, super developed intellectually, fine physically. Emotionally, he wasn't that in touch. And in his marriage, his wife did the feeling. And with the kids, she kind of addressed the issues of emotional problems. And he leaned on her a lot for that. So she dies and he has to kind of come to terms himself with the loss of his wife, which has many feelings and the the disruption of the way his life life was working so easily. And so the initial crisis, of course, is to grieve the loss of his wife. But that requires being able to be in touch with sadness, maybe recognizing there's a component of anger, his life getting turned upside down, fear, what's going to happen to me, single parenting, how am I going to do my job? So... There, for him, there was the initial ability to move through that, and that's foundational. But you can talk all day about feelings and the need to be in touch with them, register them, express them appropriately. But the real learning comes from experiencing them and learning how to express them appropriately. And then moral development, well, there's a lot of, uh, you know, sometimes just an absence of um, having some kind of codes shared or trained into us. But then it gets into, like, if you look at, you know, the classic work of Kohlberg, where you know the rules aren't all so clear when you move up that ladder of moral development it gets to be a very personal determination uh, as opposed to just you know like basically you shouldn't kill and that's clear for everybody uh, but even that can get clouded in times of war and other things so and then socially you have a social iq and the same fellow i was referring to he was also very introverted and very happy to be with his work and so he had to do some growing to be able to connect with the kids' parents, the kids' friends' parents, learning how to get more engaged with schooling, uh, learning how to just help reach out and interact with folks. And, uh, and so that, so in his, in his growth area, I would say he had to learn the most about um, you know, developing himself uh, emotionally and socially. So in the aftermath, he changed. I mean, he got over the loss of his wife, which wasn't easy, but he also changed. And you know, people said, "Wow, you know, he seems very different." It was very difficult for him, but boy, he seems like he's more engaged with the community and seems more open and able to share feelings. So these are ways in which, so and those are very foundational. I see those as key foundational stuff. And you know, you look at, around the world and you say, "Well, we're kind of blessed in a way in America. We have the luxury of being able to address these issues, especially the next ones in the area of personal like identity." And like intimacy in terms of being able to open up and share or existential issues. You know, if you're living in a place where you're getting bombed every day,
0: you're not thinking those are kind of like what Maslow would have called the higher order areas. I'm a psychotherapist as well in private practice. And I know that for me, a lot of the times, the journey that I do with people. Um, And I'm not being sexist here, but particularly with males, it seems that we work on this journey because things are very intellectualized at times. I call it the 18 inch journey as Uh we drop into our hearts, you know, and and teaching someone how to just do that. And oftentimes you're exactly on it. I mean, oftentimes it is when we are broken open by life Uh circumstances that then we're better able to access that place.
1: Yes. Oh, so well said. I agree, and it's hard to get people to just sit, take a breath, and be aware. Uh, if they don't, they're not registering them. But I, I imagine you would agree that whether they're aware of them or not, they influence the life. So I'll often say, "Hey, you know, why have the uh, proverbial uh, tail of your unconscious emotions wag the <laughs> wag the, <laughs> the dog of your of your existence? You know, not know what it's leading you to do or leading you away from." And you want to be more on all these things. I, the, the goal is to be more mindful, more conscious. And, you know, like and I'll share later in the book, using these, gaining mastery over all these keys then enables you to be more able to then open up to the transpersonal, which are the very spiritual but subtle aspects of consciousness. However, if you're preoccupied all the time with money concerns or... Or you're overly intellectual or you're bound up emotionally or you're just, you know, you got a lot of guilt when you're trying to meditate, but you're always thinking about the things you did wrong. It's hard to clear the slate, you know.
0: It's true. It so much also is that interfacing with this Maslow's hierarchy of needs and that when we're going through the crisis at first, we can feel like we're at that bottom rung where what we're literally dealing with is just surviving the day.
1: Yes, yes i was going to say and that's appropriate in certain cases it's really like you know there's no need to talk about how is this affecting your you know all these higher order needs when they're saying hey I, I, you know i am my like looking at existentialism we might say well we're fortunate we don't need to think about money as much or a lot of these other things we've been blessed to kind of bring along in our work and our own growth and so i can maybe sit back and think of a more a broader existential meaning to my life but it might not necessarily be you know, bringing awareness and learning to the world. It might be for somebody else. I just need to make money to feed my kids because, you know, that whole dimension of my life requires disproportionate amount of attention. And so, you know, you meet people where they're at with that.
0: Let's talk a little bit, too, about your own personal story, how crisis has transformed your own life. You share a little bit of this in the book.
1: Well, for me, you know, I guess I look back over, I mean, I've had certainly my share of crises Um, and I do, you know, spend a lot of time reflecting and, and I keep a journal, uh, there's times where I'm more, I have a regular meditation practice every day. So there's a lot of time where I give reflection on what am I learning from this experience, you know, as well as trying to get through it. I've had a divorce in my life. Uh, I've lost parents. Um, you know, there's been things that have gone on even in the middle of writing this book. Um, I had a, a, a run in with cancer and I'm a cancer survivor. So there have been, you know, even when things like that come up, it's like, OK, <laughs> where's the world jumping me on the shoulder? What's to be learned? What's going to prompt me here? As a matter of fact, I'll tell you, there towards the end of the book, I get into areas that uh You know, I would say that they're kind of controversial in our field. You know, I get into like areas that are kind of anomalous and paranormal, and and yet I have uh, always had an interest in this area since I've been a kid, and I've had some anomalous experiences. And so one of my subspecialties is working with people who have near-death experiences and things like that. But I wasn't sure over the years how much I wanted to quote come out around that, and I did not want to in any way marginalize myself as being a competent therapist, but also one who can be open-minded to maybe uh, experiences that much of the world would say, oh, you're crazy. That's not real. It doesn't fit with our understanding of time and space. So it took me some time to to just find the courage, if you will, to just say, okay, well, damn the torpedoes. I'm going to move forward and say, this is just what I believe. You know, some of this can't be proven logically or physically. It's just, you know, you either have the experience. But for me, for example, one personal situation was when I was literally at the point of taking a breath before I moved on to talking about the third section of the book, the transpersonal, which is where a lot of the risks would have needed to be taken. I got a diagnosis, and for me, it was like a wake-up call. And I thought to myself, "All right, well, this scares the hell out of me. <laughs> anyway, so let's deal with the fear and go get the proper, uh, you know, help from whoever's going to be the specialist." And, uh, and yet I did sit back and I thought, you know, wow, this is a real existential tap on the shoulder. It's not like I hadn't had that before in my life. But I thought, you know, let's say this takes me out and I project forward on my deathbed. Well, will I regret I never just said what the heck I needed to say and wanted to say and was afraid to say? And will I say, oh, darn, I should have put that section in that book. Why was I afraid? So that, you know, so that was kind of one way I used it. It was like an existential
0: kick in the behind, you know,
1: <laughs> to go forward with it. <laughs>
0: How absolutely serendipitous that that would happen at that time.
1: Exactly. I even thought I looked it up and I'm thinking, wow, this is like he's trying to give me an experience to sort of like underscore what I kind of already believe. And maybe, you know, the timing of events in life, you start wondering, wow, am I co-creating this? And kind of on some level, I guess I move on later in the book to talk about consciousness as the foundation of everything. And, um, and that um, all these 10 areas are capacities of consciousness. And we're all trying to learn how to master over time uh, these various areas. And once we do, I then talk about using these keys at a higher octave, which serves adult helps you cultivate spiritual awareness more than just you know a religious beliefs, more like spiritual awareness. And, and it's subtle. So it requires really having mastery in many of those areas to get to that place, which I'm still striving for. You know, I I have the chapter, which is called miles to go before I wake purposely to say, you know, I'm on the path too. I didn't get to the top of the mountain. But the higher you go, the better the view.
0: And that is the truth, you know, and that's something that we talk about a lot in session. I have a lot of clients go, when do I get there? Like, what do I just get to arrive? Like, I'm going to have all of the answers and, you know, <laughs> life will be all figured out. And I'm like, I don't think that happens <laughs> in this yeah. lifetime. I don't know. Yeah. Well,
1: you may need a couple. And I sort of <laughs> uh, lean in the direction to believe that. I always enjoyed a book by Jack Hornfield called, because I have people who have, uh, you know, they'll, they'll have experiences. They'll come in and say, I had this incredible mystical experience or I had this incredible unity experience. And, you know, and then there's a contraction, you know, they go back. And, and you know, he wrote a, a great book called, you know, After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. I love that.
0: I love that. Too. I actually wrote that down as one of the things I wanted to talk with you about, because I, I do think there's this myth that when we have these incredible experiences, peak experiences or, you know, one of these enlightened experiences, we think, doesn't everything now just stay at that level? Right. You know, and right. once I do that, then somehow I'm transcending having to deal with day-to-day life, or I, I'm not going to have difficulties anymore. And then kind yeah. of the reality, like you're saying, Oh yeah, we have to do the laundry again. Yes. And that day-to-day well, like, living that's, comes back. Yeah.
1: That saying before, uh, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water after enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. I've always liked that one. Sri Aurobindo had something good to say that he's that Indian scholar. Um, and he said that even if you get a taste of those experiences, you know, like a, a unity experience or a really beautiful mystical experience that you'll return back to more like you return back towards baseline. You may get you may get some incremental growth, but as far as sustaining that, he says you need to augment the ground. Like it still may very well be our potential be abide in a place like that. And I do think there are there are people who have who come before us, usually some pretty advanced souls, if you will, who can abide in places like that. But we may get a taste, which if you have the blessing of having that, it's a real opportunity to say, okay, I know where I'm heading. It'd be nice to get back to that. Um, but it's real, and it can be experienced. And, um, and wouldn't it be nice to, have a, to be in a space like that where you're feeling connected and love, uh, you're feeling connected with everybody and, and abiding in a place of love and compassion most of the time?
0: And those experiences, I do think, can be extremely transformational exactly because of what you said. They give us a glimpse into that being a reality as well. That even Mm. if we can't exist in that higher plane all the time, it does open us up then to like, how can I strive to live more and more in that plane of existence?
1: Yes. And as I was over the years, I've had a couple of experiences in my life, a a couple of precognitive dreams, which, as you know, are, you know, maybe uh, impressions that of an event that hasn't happened yet. I don't consider myself some super sort sort of psychic soul. But, you know, I think everybody It's sort of like dreaming. You may find with your clients, they'll say, well, I don't dream. And they'll say, well, you know, kind of probably are dreaming, you're just not aware of it, how about, you know, give you a a little exercise and they tune into dreams and the research shows that if your therapist is interested in your dreams and encourages you to start paying attention, you suddenly register them. And I think it's the same with other others. And we know there is research to show that if people disbelieve in some of these quote psychic abilities, they are likely to inhibit them from actually happening and coming across awareness. But I often would think like what, so what's the benefit of having those kinds of experiences? Well, for me, it's like when we're talking about spirituality or a sense of our consciousness, um, uh, when you look at survival, or people who have NDEs, I mean, there's they're very open to thinking that hey, there may be a very real sense of my awareness that will exist beyond my physical body. They had that experience, so that sometimes they'll have major changes afterwards. Or people who start having uh, psychic experiences, they start realizing, oh well, you know what? Maybe time and space isn't exactly the way we always imagine it works." So it starts loosening you up a little bit more through your experience to realize that, hey, maybe all these things that some of these advanced avatars have shared with us over many lifetimes in many different religions, they really were onto something here. And it's not just a bunch of religious gobbledygook, that there really is a place where we can maybe experience time and space and even um, awareness outside the body, which then can open you up to concepts like, at least to hold tenable, concepts like reincarnation. We should say, well, you know, maybe we don't know exactly how the memory, where it goes in between. Or, you know, maybe these things can't be proven through the usual methods of measurement, physical or logical, that we tend to employ. So we have to either have experiences or spend a lot of time in contemplation.
0: And as you said, you, you mentioned it in the book and you mentioned it here as well. It really is believing is seeing. It's not mm-hmm. seeing is believing. And when you're open to it. And when, when people are even just open to the possibility, like you're saying, then these things can really show up and begin to manifest yeah. for us. And,
1: and that has been uh, um, Gertrude Schmeidler, who has died and was a clinical psychologist um, and a parapsychologist, did some interesting research on sheep. It's called the sheep goat effect. Well, they actually did some really nice work with doing pre and post measurements of people's belief in certain and their ability to have a precognitive awareness of something that hasn't happened yet. And they were saying, so they they constructed this very tightly defined and very, you know, in parapsychology research, they go the extra mile to make sure that their research design is really tight because there's so many people who think it's a bunch of hogwash. So she ended up doing something which was very interesting. She had a very measurable, tightly defined experiment where people were, were told that they could anticipate beyond chance, certain cards. So there were four cards and they were one was a star, a circle, an X, and and another one, I forget, that are frequently used in parapsychology research. Anyway, her design was to look at would there be a difference between the people who believed that they can do that versus the people who didn't believe they can do it. And what she found was interesting. The people who believed they could do it, many of them had a result which was a a significant percentage, though slight, above chance. But the interesting thing was the people who didn't believe it ended up having a significantly below chance of not guessing. So they called it psi missing. So it's sort of like saying, even in your disbelief, you're affecting this capacity (laughs) in the direction. So so it's funny. So it's sort of like when you tell people about dreams, just open up to them because you're probably just not used to registering. And, and a friend of mine down in North Carolina, uh, Jim Carpenter, wrote a book called First Sight, and, and he talks about that we're probably being affected by these subtle, uh, what might be considered psychic impressions, um, and maybe even making decisions in our life based on those, but we're not even aware of it. You know. And so we're working towards consciousness. We're saying, let's work towards conscious awareness of these capacities. Uh, but they're so subtle that if we're distracted by some of these other things in those foundational areas, we're probably not going to register.
0: Everybody, this is Adrian from Feminist Hot Dog, and I want you to join me and my awesome guests as we put the fun in feminism. It's true, on Feminist Hot Dog, we explore all the ways feminism makes the world a better place, no matter who you are. So come hang out on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Mountain on NOCO FM, and don't forget, love yourself and love your buns. See you on Wednesday. Your support means the world to us. Hi, it's Dr. Natalie Phillips from Connecting a Better World. Everything we do here at NOCO FM is member-supported. From the music we play to our original podcasts and live shows, all of that costs money to produce, and we can't do it without you. Become a member today and invest in the programming you enjoy so we can create more together. Learn more at NOCO.FM. going through some kind of crisis. Like you said, none of this, this existential thought, none of this consciousness, you know, one mind, it it just, you know, we're, we're not even dealing with that. So let's bring it back. I want to talk to you about the personal development part. We were talking about identity, intimacy, existential growth, and how crisis helps us grow in those areas.
1: I always like what Eric Erickson had to say about identity, it's like, you know, you're never really done with it. It's like a garment you take off at different times and you try on new ways of being. And, and sometimes, like for the fellow who lost his wife, you know, or people who go through changes, you know, always thought of themselves as one way or another. And, you know, you might find as you grow older, you know, you're first identified by your gender and then maybe by your culture. Uh, and then you find out that, you know, as you move through life, a crisis might arise that will get you to reconsider. I always saw myself this way, and now maybe I, you know, maybe I'm sort of like being challenged to see myself in a different light, and 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 including all the way up to do you, you know, I, I'm trying to think of uh, the French Bergson, the French philosopher who said we're all gods in the making. So that's a pretty bold, pretty expanded sense of identity. I mean, you know, it can lead you to grandiosity, but the idea that we are all we all have the potential to have to be identified with being one with the ultimate consciousness. So, you know, and it can go anywhere along the way in a very practical way. I've always been identified as being, you know, know, when I shifted to become a parent, that's a new identity. Empty nesting is a new identity, (laughs) Nobody, you know, so there's lots of different ways in which that changes for people. And some people, you know, it's very uh, they struggle with it in a very uh, uh, ways that are more familiar. I work with many people who are struggling with coming out back in the days when it wasn't so okay. Uh, And they really struggled with, you know, being gay, lesbian, whatever. Uh, And I'd feel they are really trapped. They aren't able to really just express themselves because they haven't felt they can align with their true identity and bring that to the world. So there's many ways that works. The the intimacy, I, I think of that more as the capacity to share of yourself. The willingness to be vulnerable, the willingness to let people let you in. And you must know this as a therapist. Some people can open up with you, and some people you feel they're really struggling. But the first, the first area of emphasis is going to be getting them comfortable with opening up. Period. So they can get to what it is that is their experience. Might be sharing a feeling. It might be bringing you in and letting you know who they are. And and I see that as so critical. Uh, to, you know, I use the old Joe Harry window, an example in the book where, you know, you have the four panes, the, the one corner, you, this is, you know, we both know this about me and it's obvious. The other one, you see something about me I don't see. I know something about me that I don't share with you. And then in the process of the deepening, we both discover something about me that neither of us knew, which is beautiful, right? So yeah. you open up. And it's just a deepening, and then I think of the intimacy and how it's, I think of all these and how they serve the spiritual development. So what are we not, where, how deep do we have to go within ourselves to find these higher expressions and these dimensions that put us more in contact with those, uh, that spiritual center. And I think it's an inward turning process. Uh, and, and certainly if you have others in relationships, either in groups, if you get past that social inhibition of saying I can be really open with a group of people or with another person as an in- intimate partner, uh, we can plumb the depths together and discover things about ourselves. So um, that, that is a key area. And then the existential, life, you know, the key areas in existentialism, which is finding meaning in life, purpose, dealing with freedom, dealing with isolation, you know, those are the key areas in life but also you start thinking there's terrestrial meaning in life and there's cosmic meaning in life, which I like. While I am on Earth, maybe it's, for me, very practical. I need to, you know, make a living, support my family. Uh, Very, very necessary. But, you know, for others who have a lot of that, have the blessing of a lot of these other areas uh, developed and or are not needing as much attention, they may start thinking, well, where is this all going? And maybe the whole idea of, you know, what Thielhard Desjardins would say, we're moving towards the omega point, that place of unity with divine, with the divine, which is a pretty big it's pretty big reach, but it also can give you a, a psychospiritual meaning in life. So the existential area, and some people are just looking for a purpose. And it's nice when you find one that aligns with who you are and,
0: uh, and brings meaning into your life. There's
1: no one way you should be.
0: Going back to the intimacy piece, I wanted to share with you, I had a professor in graduate school who wrote the word intimacy on the board and divided it into three words. And he said, intimacy means into me, see. Oh, wow. I love that. And I love that. I'm going to jot that one down. You don't mind if I use that? No, (laughs) (laughs) please do. Um, Because I think, you know, even if we're extremely introverted, I think we all have this innate desire to be seen, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and to be our authentic selves with one another. So when we allow people into that authentic self, which is into me, see, yes. mm-hmm. that is where it, even, even though it's a very, it can be a very vulnerable place. I think that's where a lot of this growth comes from as well, as we're really able to engage in these relationships and even, you know, whether it's community, whether it's one-on-one, our primary relationship, relationships with our children,
1: sure.
0: as we can show up as our authentic selves and let people see really who we are, that's amazingly transformative and, and can be very healing.
1: I completely agree with that. And you know, and, and then you, if you take a, a Jungian approach, which I lean in favor of and probably influences my style more than anything as a therapist, letting you see my shadow, letting you see the part of me that unleashed proud of the parts of me where maybe I don't really want to see it myself, never mind let you in, Um, but yet when you do shadow work you can like bring light to it and you can diffuse it and behind it typically lies the higher self, but the idea that I have to go and visit those places in me or bring you in and let you see that so you can help me understand how that came to be, because it all is there to be understood, right? and then I can let that go, and I can let other people see, and I can also say what's behind that. Maybe there's feelings, as Jung would say, that have anchored me to patterns of behaviors that aren't necessarily putting my best foot forward, but once I get to, once I tell you what those behaviors are, and once we find out what gives rise to them, I can liberate myself from them, so they no longer have control over me, or I feel like wow, I got that. That's a very practical way of looking at liberation, right? Taking it from that sort of super spiritual etheric way out there thing to a real practical way of saying, that has had a hold on me for a good part of my life. Maybe an addiction. Maybe something some other ways of being.
0: And as you're saying, the beautiful healing piece of as another person witnesses that and Uh they aren't judgmental of it. They can hold it in the light as well or hold it for us where it's It's not such a shadow self anymore. We can start accepting those parts of ourselves.
1: Yeah. Self-compassion, right?
0: Yeah.
1: I see how this came to be in me. And yes, okay, I've always been kind of, I mean, shame. Mm. You know, shame can be such an inhibiting block for growth. Uh, And if you can get people to say, look at, and it's so counterintuitive to say, I would want to share with you that which I'm most ashamed of. Right. It, you know, it takes a lot of like encouragement as a therapist to say, "Hey, you know, I don't judge you. It's really important that you understand that there's probably a reason why you do some of the things, the things you do, and you may feel ashamed about them, but what you want to know, why, and be able to free yourself from those patterns. But, but it's it's hard to do that alone, you know, as it is to go into feelings that you're fearful are going to completely destroy you if you express them. You know, it's good. Oftentimes, I'll say, my clients, Let look, at it. it's like this. I'm here. I'm going to provide grounding for you. I'm going to hold the rope. You lower yourself down into that cave as far as you want to go. You can tell me what you're experiencing. And if you need me to yank you up at any time, I'll pull you out. You're probably going to venture a lot farther with my support than you're going to go in alone. And, you know, it's it's because it's inside work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So let's let's talk about those 10 key areas of growth and how they facilitate a stronger connection with spirit consciousness.
1: Sure. Well, if I were to say, employing a tool, one of the spiritual technologies that they're referred to, like meditation, which I think I would put up first. And the goal of meditation is is to raise our consciousness to a place where we can align with those higher spiritual states. And I do have a map, if you will, uh, that is predicated on um, a, a philosophical position called panentheism, which is the idea that consciousness is all around us and it's within us and it gives rise to everything, including materiality, which is, you know, kind of a sea change because a lot of people will say, oh, it's your brain that gives rise to consciousness. Well, I see consciousness and conscious as different. And consciousness is what I would call, what Jung would have called unus mundus, the one ground, that which gives rise to everything but it's intangible. And the quantum physicists are helping us realize that, yeah, when you bring awareness to something, it can change it from a wave to a particle. So there's a whole way in which uh, I believe at least, or I sit lightly in the saddle, that it is consciousness at the foundation. So when I'm trying to reach higher levels of that consciousness, and I'm moving into spiritual dimensions of consciousness, and you know, the mystics would say the higher, the, high, the very highest levels of consciousness is the Christ consciousness, it was Jesus the Christ, you know, Buddha. They're all, you know, they're closing in and approximating, so they truly are at that right hand of the ultimate consciousness, which we could just say synonymously is God. So when I am working with trying to put myself in a conducive state to align with that very high level of consciousness, then I need to have a certain amount of mastery of these other keys So when you think about meditation, you really want to be mind awake, body asleep, right? So I don't want to be thinking about oh I got to pay those bills or oh you know these other things that are going on and I you know sort of thinking about sex or whatever the things that come to mind when you're in a downtime, you know. So there needs to be some way of quieting that area or not thinking at all, which is you know if you are overly intellectual, you have to learn how to just not think, which it's hard to do. (laughs) You know you get that monkey mind. Thoughts jumping from tree to tree, right? And you're saying, how do you not think? Because even thinking that I shouldn't think is thinking. So that takes a little work. Or, or having emotions in a place where they're not, where you've done a lot of work. And you're, play, you're basically in a centered place where you're not going to be starting to cry while you're meditating, maybe, or feeling a lot of anger and realizing when I'm still a lot of unresolved things in my life haven't been haven't been worked through. And so they they kind of now this isn't bad because it may bring into you your awareness where your work needs to be. But if you get all if you're if you're trying to be still in meditation and you do find yourself being encroached upon by feelings of guilt for wrongdoing in that whole moral area, then there needs to be some some work there. But when you have all these different areas, and, and social can also be a piece of it because you can work in a meditation group and you can get a certain amount of energy, if you will, meditating with others and being still in a place with a group of people. Uh, and then the other areas, the personal areas, your are identity is that maybe you need to reflect on the fact that you really are one with everyone and that your highest identity is as Bergson said, a God in the making. We're all learning to try to move, you know, in that uh, what is it, teleology? That that uh, all becoming. We're all in the process of becoming. It's all on the way. And then the existential, which is that that meaning of uh, what is the cosmic meaning? Why are we here? If we do return in reincarnation, it takes lots of lives to work this through, you know, who knows where we're all at? And maybe that's okay. You know, so we keep learning. And so the intuitive and spiritual, they are more in that direction already and they give us a taste of the reality that maybe there is a way where our consciousness can not be held in check by what we think to be just a material, a a material, physical, time and space bound, you know, awareness that it can open up. To those other dimensions including the spiritual which is purely a state of connection and openness to those higher levels of consciousness and they can guide us and they can open up aspects that maybe are inherently everyone's the ability to heal uh, to have access to knowledge and information that is all around us um the akashic field the akashic record the idea that they're, that all is recorded all is out there and it can be it can be tapped into it could be very creative uh, and it could be just sometimes I come out of my meditations and I'm just, I'm just filled with love. I just feel like, oh man, this is so good. <laughs> when I get done, I just feel love. You know, it's like, this would be a nice place to stay. You know, so, um, anyway, I think that that's how you work with those other dimensions. If you wind that back, you'd say, okay, so a crisis that may come along may key in on a couple of those as an opportunity to say, okay, I can move those a little further down the road. I'm learning how to be more aware of my feelings now. And so that's great because now I'm cleaning up a lot of stuff that is uh, maybe been locked down in the whole feeling dimension. And as I get those areas managed and resolved, I just I'm just calmer. I'm just more centered. I can feel sad and you know it moves through me. I, I don't get I don't get emotionally constipated, if you will. I move things through.
0: I, <laughs> I like <learned> that. <laughs> When we're going through those challenges and those crises, you know, oftentimes it is that, that like we talked about, that, that breaks us open. We need those to break us open because oftentimes we might have a certain image of how we have to be in the world. Or we may have really bought into who we are in the world through our roles, through a position or a title. And so we really have, you know, our ego in charge. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's it's through those experiences i I say like in my own life, when I've gone through crisis my my daughter struggled with addiction for ten years mm-hmm. and now has been clean and sober for the last two and a half years, mm-hmm. and it was at that last moment right before she went into treatment, I truly felt like life had brought me to my knees. And being completely humbled, taking care of, at the time, her three- and four-year-old son for the next four months while she was in treatment. Those are the things that out of that came tremendous growth, tremendous insight, because no longer are you the role. I wasn't the radio show host. I wasn't the psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was actually a beautiful Exercise, if you will, in being in the moment and being with those boys and loving those boys and being with the pain yeah. that that experience caused and, and then living and breathing through that pain to the rewards on the other side.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's well, beautiful, beautiful, and well said. You know, when you mentioned the word ego, I, I was thinking back to uh, a, a woman who I quote in the book uh, towards the end where she's talking about a tantric. Notion of consciousness and how you know uh, really it's, it's all one. But she's, she it was interesting in how she was talking about how consciousness distills down, and even there's a, a level where you would say there's a there's the God consciousness or you know shushness as William James would say. There's no need for a con because there's no self. It's just it just is, and then you get into spirit consciousness, and then and then it, it sort of distills down to mind. But after mind, it splits. And talk, she talks about the physical ego side and the transpersonal side, uh, and how and the transpersonal subtle side. And uh, in some of the people who write about this, they say that it's quieting the physical and the ego in order to be more attuned to the subtle transpersonal. So sometimes we have these experiences where we realize, wow. My ego is really kind of, not in like, hey, how wonderful I am or boasting, but my ego has gotten so um, locked in with this sense of identity, maybe, as a therapist or as a father or whatever, um, as a writer, Uh, but really I want to let that go. I want to just be open to the experience I'm in right now uh, because there's some things probably to be learned, and maybe they're going to be more subtle, and they're uh, going to be beyond, and they may not be physical, and they may not be about my ego. So these are—that's a, a wonderful experience—and just coming from a place of love and, and um, needing to say, shed anything else that armors you, or unintentionally even and unwittingly uh, blocks you from just being able to be totally open to that beautiful experience. A lot, of, a lot of work on mindfulness in this process.
0: But I think ultimately the chrysalis crisis can lead to our transformation. And I guess if you were to share. What is the, I, and I know there's so much, so it might be hard to encapsulate it all in one essential message. But what, what do you want to leave our listeners with? Their takeaway message.
1: Takeaway message is the very thing you may be, every experience that you're having has probably something to teach you. And even if it's a crisis, that yes, you want to address the issue and you need to, in a very practical way, uh, move through the crisis. But there's a point where you can step back and say, what what can I learn from that experience and how can it deepen me and how can it help me and my path evolving? It's all about evolution. It's all about how can I evolve and grow and how are all these experiences, how can I use them as ways of growing in life? So that would be it, whether they're crises or they're just passing experiences that aren't so or so significant and, and you know throw you so much. But, that, it, that they're role. I mean, being aware of your experiences and, and open to what they have to teach you.
0: And so again, the book is Chrysalis Crisis, How Life's Ordeals Can Lead to Personal and Spiritual Transformation. It's, it's
1: out and available it's on Amazon, I imagine in various, I, my publisher has not exactly told me where it's been distributed, but I would imagine it's in various bookstores too.
0: So I am thrilled to have this time with you. As I said, I would love to have you back on the show. There's, a, there's well, much more to talk about here.
1: I would love to talk to you more, Stephanie. It was enjoyable for me, too. went to by fast.
0: Just like we talked about at the very beginning of the show, with the example of the butterfly, we all need struggle to grow. It's only through that struggle that the butterfly's wings are strengthened, and so it can take flight. So is it true oftentimes with ourselves. It is actually out of our crisis at times that our greatest gifts and our greatest strengths can be revealed, and we can grow in deep and profound ways. I think it's important that we also realize how transformation truly can serve us. At the time of a crisis, it feels like it might absolutely unearth us and that recovery may just be a slow and painful process. There really is never one point of arrival that we continue to learn and grow and evolve throughout our lives. And that is just a beautiful part of our journey of being human So to be with wherever you are on the path and know that that's exactly where you need to be, giving yourself some grace, some mercy, some compassion for wherever you are in this exact moment. And if you need to reach out, if you're going through a hard time, if you're going through crisis, I just want to encourage you and I want to invite you to please reach out to those loving presences around you. And if none are available, please seek help from a counselor or a professional. We all go through crisis. We all go through difficult times. The gift in this is that we can utilize those times to grow, to heal, to evolve, and hopefully become even better versions of ourselves on this often twisted and pothole-filled journey we call life. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James.